Okay, everybody, welcome. Uh, this week, uh, Peter and I are going to do our second TV podcast, even though it's a movie podcast. Uh, we are going to do Mind Hunter, the Netflix uh, series uh, about uh, the hunt for serial killers. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. Uh, Peter, this is your pick this week, although we're both fans of the show and we're both fans of the books uh, that this show is based off of. Yeah. So this is a series um, that the first season has aired completely. Um, and uh, it was on uh, it was on Netflix. It was a Netflix production. And it's 10 episodes, I believe. I think it was Correct. 10. 10 episodes in the first season. The first season's out. I presume they're going to have a second season at some point this year. I think um, so, because IMDb is already showing it as having more than 10 episodes. Yeah, I mean, when, when i uh, reading about it, it supposedly has been renewed for a second season. Um, so there'll be at least, a, at least another one. Um, and the... The story's about the development of profiling and uh, an attempt to track down serial killers by the FBI. And it's based on um, the real-life telling of the development of that special unit by uh, John Douglas, who was an FBI agent and has written several books about um, tracking serial killers, uh, true crime books, and about the history of the development of that unit. Um, and one of them was even called Mindhunter, which I suppose is where the show came from, the, the title came from. Um, and uh, the, the, the unit um, is seen in some other films, notably um, Silence of the Lambs. Um, right, where, where Scott Glenn plays Jack Crawford, who is essentially John Douglas as well. Right. And, uh, you know, at that point, it's 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 a mature um, sort of prestigious institution, small, you know, subset of the FBI. And um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Clarice Starling really wants to go work there. That's her aspiration uh, where to end up in the FBI. Whereas in this series, it doesn't exist when the series starts out. And it they're, they're really, I mean, the, the first season is essentially about the inception of the behavioral science unit and how they have to start from scratch against a lot of institutional resistance. It's, it's viewed as sort of, you know, a, a more limp-wristed approach than the FBI is more comfortable with. You know, they want to kick in doors and shove guns in people's faces. Right. And it's actually really what the, the series is about, what the first season really is about, is about the change in the perception and conception of criminality uh, and serial killers in particular and changing culture in the FBI. And, uh, you know, it starts in the late 70s, um, the series. And then I, I guess it goes for probably a couple of years, maybe. Um yeah, no, I think beginning. I think by the end of the first season it's 1980. Okay, so so it's it spans. I could be wrong. I mean, maybe it's all in one year, but I definitely got the impression that time was moving a little bit. Yeah, I felt like maybe a couple of years, but uh, you know, so it's it's on that that scale. It's it's not uh, a vast uh, span of time. It could be a year, two, three. Um, so you and I have both read. Um, the John Douglas, at least one or two of his I, books. I probably I read four or five of them. 
Yeah, I, which is kind of like reading one, I guess. Yeah, well, there's, there is, we should say in all fairness, <laughs> there's a huge amount of overlap between the books. He right. covers the same cases kind of over and over and over. And, um, you know, I remember you actually, I think I read the book because you read it first, the first one we read, and I don't remember the title of it, but I remember it was him basically relating a number of serial killer cases that he investigated and and how he profiled and it was really about the act of profiling and what it was and how he did it rather than about historically forming the behavioral science unit but i did you did you how do you think the books hold up i mean back then you liked them do you do you, you know, feel I the same way you know i haven't read the books since i read them i kind of you know he had a period where he was a hot author these books were coming out about once a year and i read i think four or five of them and the last one of his books i read was he wrote a book about the unabomber which is essentially an insta book like it's really the weakest one and it feels the most rushed because he was capitalizing off of all the press that the the unabomber was getting at the time and by then i'd read whatever a pile of them and i was kind of done right um, but but I, re- I remember them very well because, you know, maybe because there's so much repetition in the books. Like I remember the cases in a lot of detail. Hmm. Um, I only remember that they all had a blue or black van. <laughs> right, I which mean, is why, by the way, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs had a blue drives van. a van because, <laughs> because John Douglas told uh, Thomas Harris, who wrote – uh, Signs of the Lambs, this 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 note of this idea that like serial killers tend to drive around in vans, which were basically rooms on wheels where they could abduct people and do things to them and essentially be invisible. Right. Um, the there's three main characters in this show, so even though it really is about John Douglas in, in here, the they use the name Holden Ford for him, but yeah, but there's two other main characters. One is Bill Tench, who is essentially Robert Wrestler, who was John Douglas's partner. Right. Uh, at the formation of the behavioral science unit. And then the third um, the third character is she's referred to in this show as Wendy Carr. But Wendy Carr is a fictitious representation of Ann Burgess, who was um, uh, a professor at Boston College who they they recruited and worked with. So so the, all three of the main characters are essentially based on real people. Right. And, and she came in to write basically write proposals and and in real life and i guess write funding for them so that she sort of lent uh you know uh an academic air to what they were doing yeah and well and she i think also not only did she lend academic sort of credibility but she also she is more organized and structured in her thinking because she comes from an academic background and and she often gives them ideas about how to look at stuff or categorize stuff or or approach stuff in a more organized way as opposed to in them the just thinking of stuff, right? Them just thinking of stuff yeah. and going out and doing it. And she's always pushing for more organized behavior on the part of the behavioral science unit in terms of interviews and structure and writing and things like that. And analysis, of course. Right. Um, and there's one other character that appears in a few episodes of uh, Ed Kemper, Edmund Kemper, who was a serial killer who was arrested in uh, 1973 um, in, in reality. And he, in some ways, is the spark, is a spark of in- inspiration for, um, for the John Douglas character, for um, Holden Ford. Um, he really, because when he, he, 
he starts to get the idea to go out and, and interview um, serial killers to learn something from them. And because the show, basically the, the, the origin of the show before the behavioral science unit exists, even as a spark sort of in, in their imagination, is that he, uh, he's an FBI agent. He's a relatively young agent. And he gets hooked up with Bill Tench, who's a more mid-career or mid-to-later career uh, agent who has been traveling to de- police departments around the country and giving lectures about uh, detective work and about investigations and about modern techniques. Um, and it, so he goes, uh, get, he partners up with, uh, Bill Tench to go around and talk to police officers and learn, and they get exposed to some crimes, um, because they get asked for advice, um, by some of the, uh, local departments that they get them. They go all over the country. I mean, they spend half their time in these crappy motel rooms and airplanes. Um, and some of the best sort of period feel I thought was the way that the airplanes and the hotel rooms look um, and the cars that they're in and just how they're sort of cramped together uh, so, traveling. So the feel of the show I think is worth commenting on. And I this is kind of a personal bugaboo for me. Like you and I are old enough that even though we were little kids, we remember the 70s. And I always feel like the 70s are portrayed as sort of stupid or more florid than they actually were. And, you know, when we were kids in the 70s, people just looked normal, like they wore shirts and pants and had haircuts and they weren't ridiculous. And I think that a lot of movies and TV shows, you know, even if they don't get to the point where it's that 70s show kind of farce, they tend to overdo the 70s. And and one thing that really struck me about the show is it really feels like the 70s, like they look normal and their clothes look normal and their cars look normal. Like they're not wearing headbands and giant bell bottoms and beads. You know what I mean? <laughs> Platforms. Like, like they, right. Yeah. And they do a great job of feeling like, you know, like if you were a 30 year old person in the 70s, like this is about what you'd probably look like if you had a job and had to show up to an office every day. And and just the way like the restaurants feel or like hotel lobbies and just houses or just the way the street signs look like they they do a phenomenal job of really making you feel like you're really in the 70s it doesn't feel like a set it doesn't feel like a goof and that's hard to pull off and i feel like most shows set in the 70s they can't do it whereas these guys i think they really pulled it off yeah it's like uh the retrospectoscope has to have a uh, strobe lights paisley uh and and um you know, platform shoes with goldfish right. in the heels and spear um, in the sky playing on the soundtrack <laughs> and, uh, or staying alive. Occasionally. <laughs> That's the other thing you get. You get platform shoes or you get disco, right? Exactly. Or you get them mixed together. Um, but they don't do that here. And, and I, it, it lends the show an era of, sorry, an air of authenticity, you know, like right. you, you feel like it is a, a form of time travel, like you're really there in that era and they are comfortable in that era, you know, dialing on rotary phones and and writing on pads with pencils in you know longhand. Right. Uh, and, and typing on manual typewriters. Right. And, you know, analog tape recorders and right. And it doesn't you're right. It, they don't they don't make uh, they're just they just use them as tools just the way, you know, you and I use a laptop uh, as a tool. And, and that you know, there's much is made both in the opening credits and in every episode of the show of the tape recorder, and the tape recorder is supposed to be a big deal. 
Like they yeah. have a tape recorder. Like it's it's really helpful and yeah. and it's very prominently placed. Like they are happy to have it because it really helps them. Like right. I remember as a kid, you know, my dad had a cassette recorder and my brother and I like we were forbidden to touch it. So of course, the minute my dad left for work, we were like recording ourselves, you know, goofing around and farting and making hell, raising trouble in the house. And it was amazing to have a tape recorder in the seventies. It was a big deal. I still I think wish it's I had those tapes today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, it was just a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, these guys aren't quite doing that. They're recording Ed Kemper talk about you know, having sex with decapitated heads, but, uh, it is nonetheless very useful to them. And the Um, guy who plays Kemper, uh, you know, and Kemper, you know, they use Kemper as a stand in for what they learn from multiple serial killers in real life. Kemper kind of gives them in the show a lot of information so they can use one character to do that. But the guy who plays Ed Kemper, uh, is terrific and he's a dead ringer. Yeah. For the real Ed Kemper. His name is Cameron Britton, and I don't think I've seen him in, he in anything else. It. But he yeah, and he's he you kind of you keep hoping in each episode that they're gonna go back to prison and talk to Ed Kemper again because you know, that's their version of Clarice talking to Dr. Lecter. It's the yep. scene where the serial killer can expound on why he is the way he is and how he got there and how he thinks. And again, just like when you watch Signs of the Lambs, you keep waiting for Clarice to talk to to Hannibal yeah. a little more. It's the same thing here where you want them to go back to Kemper. But I think Kemper is a surrogate for multiple other characters. Although I think in real life, he really was a spark um, for them because he was so much smarter and more eloquent than most of the killers. And, and was willing able to talk and verbose. Right. And introspective. Um, and... Uh, was he was not like the other ones and he was one of the early ones they talked to. So I think he, I think it was downhill from there in some ways for them because Kemper was so willing and able um, to participate. But you're right. I mean, man, he, I mean, Cameron Britton is, he is riveting. I would see, I would say, you know, I would watch if you're not into true crime or if you're not interested in Silence of the Lambs, you're not interested in serial killers. And uh, I would even watch one or two episodes. I would watch an episode with him in it um, and just watch that one. I think it's uh, I'm trying to look up which uh, which episode it is. It's yeah, I, think I think it's the second around one. Episode, episode two. two. Yeah, I think it's episode two where they really see him, meet him for the first time. And man, that's good. He is really good. And David Fincher, by the way, directed that the first couple episodes of the show. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because it sort of it reminds me of the Nick, you know, the Nick had Soderbergh. This yeah. has David Fincher, you know, both sort of playing to their strengths. I think, you know, even though um, John Groff, who plays Holden Ford slash John Douglas, he gets, you know, he's gets the lion's share of the screen time. I think that Holt uh, McCallany, who plays Bill Tench, the the Bob Wrestler character, he has the hardest part in the show because he's sort of there to be the grounded agent, and that's a difficult part to play. But he does a great job. And then as this, as the show goes on, you find out that he's a more complex character than you initially thought. He's got a sort of a difficult home life. Yeah. He has a developmentally delayed son or autistic son. It's not clear. Right. And he's, you know, he's not just a gruff dude because he's a 
a macho guy. He's a gruff dude because life hasn't been so kind to him and he's just dealing with a lot of stuff and he really needs this job. You know, Holden's young and if the FBI doesn't work out, well, he can go do something else. But, you know, Bill needs his insurance. Bill yeah. needs his retirement. Like, Bill cannot mess this up. And when Bill is skeptical or when Bill looks to be the kind of old stick in the mud guy, you find out he really is not at all. And that when he's resistant to something, he's conservative about it for a reason, not just because he's inflexible or because he's not thoughtful. So you really, he, he, his star rises uh, gradually. And, and he's often, he's often shown to be right. Yes. Yeah. He's right. And he's, he's, really more um he's more consistent for sure than uh holden is um and uh and and that you you really do see i mean holden is is the younger agent holden is is fairly experienced i guess when the show starts he's he's not completely green but um bill ha- really does have a tremendous he he's a little jaded but really has a lot of experience and he knows a lot um, he knows how to, how to deal with, with the cops better. He knows how to deal in some ways with criminals better. And he sure knows how to deal with the other feds better. Um, and he understands the politics and the hierarchy of the FBI and the local cops. Um, just right, the who world look at in him general. And look at him as a quote unquote regular guy that they right. can just reach out to or relate to. Right. Um, the other character that is, she sort of has a much lesser role even than Bill Tench, but Hannah Gross plays uh, Debbie Mitford, Holden's girlfriend, and and she's very sort of – she's all pointed elbows and arched eyebrows in this, but mm-hmm. she's really there to be a counterpoint to Rigid Holden. She's not supposed to be kind of – she's not really supposed to be like a hippie chick. She's a grad student, but she's supposed to be much further to the left, much more sort of free-thinking in terms of her politics. And she serves as a counterpoint for Holden so that he can have conversations with somebody about his life and his job who's a bit of an outsider and can give him perspective on what he's doing that he doesn't have. And she's very, very good. She's, again, played by Hannah Gross, who – um, I've seen in one or two things, but this is the most prominent role I've ever seen her have. Yeah. I think most of the actors, um, are not, uh, typical first column kind of names, you know, the, the producers of the show and, uh, directors of the episodes are, but, um, the, the actors are, are relatively less known. Um, Do you know, it was funny when you um you you saw this before I did like you noticed it on Netflix first and and you pointed it out to me and and I just was like oh man John Douglas I don't know if I want to go back to all that you know I read all those books a million years ago and then I said well I'll watch one episode and see and then I watched one episode and then I watched another and then about 36 hours later I'd finished the whole damn thing and I was like huh <laughs> this is pretty good you really did it took me weeks and you you uh, I talked to you and you said you're I'm on episode nine you know <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's funny because I hadn't really binged anything in a long time like I hadn't found, found anything that I thought was really binge worthy but uh, this was really good like this definitely I think it took me a little bit by surprise in terms of how much meat there was on the bone and how much I got back into the whole uh, hunt for the serial killer thing. By the way, Bob Ressler coined the term serial killer in real life. Right. 
Um, the the other thing that is sort of woven through the first season is the the fact that the the BTK killer, uh, the uh, what's his name, um, the the guy who played the um, Dennis. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Yeah. He's he's running around Wichita getting ready to or abducting people, and they know nothing about him. But you get a sense that there are other serial killers doing their thing around the country. And I imagine the second season will heavily involve the search for the BTK killer. Right. Uh, because they have just enough screen time of him walking around doing things, looking like he's up to no good. Uh so that he will be a, a key feature in the second season, but you don't really see much of that in the first season, just a little bit. Yeah. There's not much. It's sort of a taste, um, that they show once in a while. Uh, I think we both thought that, that it lost a little bit of steam as it went along. to the, towards episode 10, you know, Kemper sort of reappears at the end and that's a little bit of a highlight, but, um, the development of the show is is about cultural issues in the FBI that they're running into. Um, you know, it's sort of it's still uh, Hoover's FBI, notwithstanding the female undergarments. Um, but um, you know, the it, it's they're not particularly imagined. I mean, they're not really. This is not a group of men who are particularly interested in sociology, criminology in the sense of, in, in psychopathology and talking about uh, what might bring, cause someone to become a serial killer. Uh, there's no introspection. I mean, they're really just about where are the fingerprints and who did it and who can we sweat out, right? Right. In, and in who, can we, who can we get a confession out of? Right. And, uh, you know, that there is that development that that conflict runs through the series and is, is fairly interesting. But it's it's so interesting in the beginning when they sort of when they meet with Kemper that it's I don't know. I, I, did you find that you found it was going to be a loss, I, a little steam? Well, I and again, I think that it's hard for a 10 episode series to maintain that intensity throughout. And for example, um, I'm a big fan of Fargo. We haven't talked about Fargo on the podcast, but you know, I've seen the first two seasons of Fargo. I'm probably going to start the third season of Fargo tonight after we do this podcast, but Fargo usually around episode six or seven starts to drag and then they have a big, big finish. Um, so, you know, it is hard, I think for them to sustain it the whole way through because they do have to have at some point, a lot of exposition, uh, to move the plot along before they can, get to the mechanics of resolving stuff. And the first season doesn't really end with any resolution much at all. I mean, they, there's some catching of criminals, but there's no big gigantic finale to the first season. They're just sort of, they're building and ongoing. No, I mean, uh, you know, the, their big accomplishment is that they get a basement office, uh, that they can work (laughs) out of, you know, it's really a dump. Um, you know, there's not a lot of traction. Well, and again, the last episode is mostly talk. You know, there's a brief scene. Kemper returns in the last episode mm-hmm. where he uh, he has, um, I think it's either he has a, I think he has a suicide attempt, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, and he's and, in the hospital. And, and Holden goes to visit him in the hospital, and then there's a tense scene where they talk, but 
but that's really it. And then nothing is resolved at all at the end of the first season. So it, it is a little bit of a tease in the sense that there's not a huge payoff, which maybe was a mistake, but maybe they felt that they had to do it to to get people in to come back for the second season. You know, did you watch Orange is the New Black? Yes, not the whole way through, but I think I watched a couple seasons. But, you know, the first season ends on a great cliffhanger. And I remember thinking when I watched it, like, oh, they handled that very well. Like, yeah. like the first season had its ups and downs, but it ended on such a great note that I remember thinking, oh, I've definitely got to tune back in for season two. Like, I'd been a little up and down or plus minus on it as it went, but uh, they really did a good job with the cliffhanger. I think I think the cliffhanger is where uh, where Pensatucky tries to kill the protagonist. Um, yeah, but, you know, and cliffhanger... That's, and that's kind of where it, you, it leaves you. I mean, cliffhanger is the age-old way to end any kind of serial uh, entertainment, right? You know, you, you get to keep them coming back. Uh, you stick a cliffhanger there, and uh, and they're coming back. Right. This is not the kind of show where they leave them laughing. No, <laughs> no. This This show... I mean, in some ways, it's really what I liked about it is it sort of meanders its way forward. Uh, I don't I meanders is not a good that, that has a negative connotation. I mean, they take they don't it doesn't really have a, a you know, we talk about the greased rail, right? It, it's not a greased rail. It feels like life in the sense that things there is progress made if you look at it that way from later on retrospectively but as you're going through it just feels like them sort of stumbling it through and learning things as they go and developing but not in a in a certain logical linear way which is closer to reality and it goes with the way it looks and it goes with the way they behave it's sort of a flat realistic um painting yeah, no, I think that that's fair. But on the other hand, that's maybe it's a better way to do it because it's less sensational. The, the, the topic itself is sensational enough, and the nature of the crimes that they're investigating are sensational enough. So if they give it a, a dry, flat, police procedural feel and they keep them looking like they're professionals, it's, it's, it's better and it keeps you more engaged and it prevents it from going over the top and descending into – maybe self parody or, or, or farce. Yeah. It could become a cartoon easily. No, I, I like that aspect of it. I like the fact that they don't, that it's not super flashy and it's not, it's, it's a very sort of adult, uh, you know, masterpiece theatery sort of thing in some <laughs> ways. Right. You know, I, I joke about uh, my dinner with Andre, but this is, you know, this is like the, <laughs> the crime version. This is of the that. crime, right? This is the serial killer. This of my is dinner my with dinner with Ed Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> now that now we're talking like that, that that'll be interesting. <laughs> but you so, know, in the you know, one thing that's really interesting that they 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 kind of dance around in the in the show a bit is that you know in the book, Douglas is very blunt about the fact that he thinks that they didn't catch most of them. Like most serial killers, either didn't get caught ever, died. Or, um, you know, went to jail for something else and their crime stopped when they went to jail for something else. Right. And that's, that's you know, sort of that plays up the idea that while they're doing their thing and, and working hard, you know, Dennis Rader is running around Wichita doing his thing 
working hard. You know, like, yeah. like these people are taking enormous pains not to be detected and they're very hard to find. And, you know, most of these serial killers he talked about in the book were, were killing, you know, homeless people, prostitutes, you know, people who aren't going to necessarily be missed or whose disappearances are not going to be linked. It's, right. it's only when you start getting similar victims or prominent victims or victims that the news is going to pay attention to that a lot of these people came to their attention. Right. Um, I, I, I think that it was brave of Netflix to make this. I mean, you could you could see that maybe this this had the potential to be too niche or too narrow an audience um, and flop, but it, it was very well received. It's got a super high rating on IMDb. Um, and, um, it's been renewed like we talked about. So, I mean, it's good to see that quality television gets recognized as such. Yeah, no, I I mean, you know, look, it's like, like we talk about, it's the golden age of TV and I think we probably should pay a little more attention to it maybe in our own discussions. Um, but, uh, Netflix, the quality of Netflix shows, I guess, is generally considered to have waned to some extent as a whole. In other words, they're a little less discriminating about what they'll either buy the rights to or produce themselves, um, than they were initially a few years ago, but, um, they still make really good shows. They make plenty of them and this is one of them, um, and, and, you know, we've said before, I think we made this comment when we talked about the Nick, like we're living in the post Sopranos world. Like, like this show could never happen without the Sopranos, you know, without Breaking Bad, without Mad Men, like the, the degree to which they can do a deep dive on characters and uh, world building in in, in a, a time and an era that has passed Um you know, it's it's a luxury that they can do that now, but I think audiences are ready for it and want it. You know, you right. want to see the details of their lives and see, you know, you see Holden go home and see Bill go home and what they have to deal with. Um, it's, it's again, I, I'm very aware of The Sopranos when I watch this show. So really, I guess David Chase, right, the creator of The Sopranos, gets a little bit of credit here too. Right. Um. I'm very I'm I'm eager for season 2. I'll definitely be watching season 2. I'll be curious if it holds up in terms of its uh quality uh and viewership in season 2. Right. Um other things you want to say on this? I mean the, the cast is pretty small. I mean there's really four main characters and we kind of cover them. Other things you want to cover? No, I mean, you know, it's very well made. Uh even better than average as, as and the standards are for TV series, uh, for, especially for major uh, productions by Netflix, Amazon, etc., at this point are very high. But even so, uh, it's very well made. Um, it's uh, shot in 4K, Dolby 5.1 for those who you know want to have that capability, which I don't even. Um, and you're the you're really more the uh, technophile of the two of us. Yeah. Um, but, Did you notice, by the way, that Charlize Theron is one of the producers? Yeah, yeah, no, there's uh, right, and ha- right, and, and I, I read Fincher. that she and Fincher brought it to HBO first, and HBO passed, and that's how they ended up on Netflix. Yeah, and I guess Joe Penhall is the showrunner um, overall, but uh, 
But yeah, I think it's certainly worth uh, seeing. And since pretty much everyone has Netflix at this point, uh, it's not too not too difficult to watch. Uh, <laughs> everyone, I read somewhere that Netflix alone accounts for about fifteen percent of all bandwidth on the internet worldwide. Right. If it keeps going, it might surpass porn in twenty years. I don't. I don't know. That's that's tough. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Even that's an optimistic uh, assessment. <laughs> well, I gave it twenty years. You know, there's that I mean, great episode of The Simpsons where Bart uh, makes a web page that becomes really, really popular with his angry dad videos, <laughs> and uh, and and he's really excited. And and Homer says to him, like, "How popular are you?" And he's like, "We're first, right after pornography." And and Homer's <laughs> like, "Really?" And he's like, "Yeah, but that means we're ten billion." <laughs> Uh, what else has joe penhall made he made uh, something called blue orange which i never heard of and a musical um not a lot of looks like he's mostly a play he's mostly a playwright interesting i'm not up on my british playwrights are you he's english and australian i'm not up on my english australian playwrights but i'm definitely watching mindhunter yeah me Uh, should we wrap there yeah, we'll uh, we'll check out season two later. And you got to watch Fargo. I'm telling you, like if you like Mindhunter and you like The Nick, you got to watch Fargo. Like Fargo is really, really well done. And just when you sometimes you get a little frustrated with it and you think, oh, come on, where are they going? You're like, aha, they knew where they were going. But Fargo, you we should do a podcast on Fargo. If just watch season one and see what you think. But Fargo was terrific too. Uh, again, to, to go with our golden age of television. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next time. All right, thanks, Peter. Take care.